Exterior. Platform. Day. A train approaches the station. Chugga 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 chugga. It draws closer and closer. The onlookers are amused for now. Chugga 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 chugga. It's bigger. There's murmuring, concern. Chugga 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 chugga. Now it's close, too close. Is someone gonna die? Oh my God, dude, run! Chugga 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 chugga. The audience rushes towards the exits, screaming and trampling over one another, thinking they'll be killed by a movie. The train comes to a stop. The first movie of all time is complete. Chugga chugga, chugga chugga, chugga chugga, chugga chugga. The train and the movie camera have been inseparable since cinema was invented. The unstoppable beast in Buster Keaton's The General. The titular train upon which the strangers make their Hitchcockian plan. The train that goes into the tunnel for Mission Impossible 1 with the helicopter on it. You know, uh, red light, green light. But on Cyber Cowboys, Denis Canter would take the movie train to unforeseen heights and length. He would make the biggest train of all time, and a huge part of its construction would fall on the shoulders of one Zach Bogart. Yo, yo, what's up, cohorts? It's your boy, Zach Bogart. I'm in the Bugatti right now. Too bad you could have got me. I'm running from the feds like my name, John Gotti. Rico Act. Don't be mad you couldn't get me. Don't weep. Try my answering machine at the beep. It's broken. Hey, Zach, it's Will from A Closer Look again. This is my fourth time trying to contact you. Uh, You agreed to talk about your experience working as a best boy on the set of Cyber Cowboys. Uh, I understand it could be traumatic for you, but we did pay for your flight to Miami so you could Zoom us from a warmer climate. Uh, Yeah, hope you're doing good. Humphrey Bogart's grandson, Zach Bogart, has wanted to be a rapper since he was 13 years old but a lack of rapping ability meant he was forced to work in the lighting department on feature films throughout the 80s and 90s. Zach, your grandfather Humphrey, Hollywood royalty is not sufficient to describe what he was. How did that help your career? Man, before I was born, he was in a tomb, King Tut. But yeah, it was I. So you worked in the lighting department on Cyber Cowboys? I mean, shit, that's where I started out. But eventually, I was Dolly Parton on that big-ass internet train. Nine to five. What are you doing? What do you mean? Bieber? That, right there. You always say something after you say something. I don't know. Fuck. I'm chilling. Leave me alone. Denise's ambition and megalomania up to this point were nothing compared to what would come with the construction of InfoTrain. We're going to try our best to describe as much of InfoTrain as we can. But understand that no one man can fully describe or depict the entirety of Infotrain itself. It starts off small, like all big things do, with a single locomotive engine car, the type you would have seen in the Great Train Robbery in 1903. Behind that engine car, 50 more engine cars. On top of each engine car are giant blue tankers filled with nitrous. Directly behind the engine cars lies the driving compartment. There's an engineer's station, a brake, and a furnace. They don't do anything. Behind the dummy driving compartment, thousands more cars make up a three-mile-long train. All of them look exactly like an Old West Union Pacific cross-country express, and all of them are empty. On top of every single rail car is an impenetrable metal pillar, 
which all join together 100 stories high. Once they join, the metal expands outward in a V-shape nearly a mile wide. And on top of this sits the city of Dictionaria. Dictionaria, in contrast to the rest of the Cyber Cowboys dystopia, is futuristic perfection. Massive skyscrapers are connected by pristine walkways and ski lifts. The Cortanas, acting as Dictionaria's police, patrol the skyway on jetpacks. The population of 50,000 elites and government agents live in the high-rise towers up and down the length of the train. Many live in upside-down skyscrapers which extend downward off the sides of the V-base like the glass of a chandelier. At the back of the train, there is a large complex of financial buildings that, from above, looks like a queen's crown. The area is called Queensboro, and on top of it sits one of Infotrain's most hallowed halls. A large floating orb building at the top of the crown is the stock exchange called The Message Board. In it, wealthy traders debate the values of different types of information, all while making themselves richer. Next to Queensboro, the party neighborhood of nightlife. A tower shaped like a horse's head holds a casino, restaurants, nightclubs, and a 30-story Playboy mansion. Throughout nightlife, you can find hives of activity for the lucky residents of Dictionaria. One corner of nightlife holds the only remaining college in the 2022 dystopia, which for some reason is Florida State. The campus is centered around a 200-foot statue of its most famous alum, Burt Reynolds. In the middle of the train, you'll find the transportation and shipping district of Bishop. Planes and helicopters fly in and out of this area, carrying Cortanas on Mayor Lancelot's missions. The Bishop's Head, one of the largest towers in Dictionaria, holds the internet. Vast libraries of information slips and computer networks. Very few have access. Every 30 minutes, a loud bang is heard at the top of the Bishop's Head. The T-shirt cannon has been fired. The custodians of the internet, admins we call them, fill a decommissioned nuclear warhead to the brim with new slips of information. They load the warhead into a supermassive t-shirt cannon, recalibrate the missile trajectory, and fire it hundreds of miles to a faraway town. Where the missile will make contact with the ground, often destroying buildings and killing people. But the slips will fly everywhere, and soon gangs from all nearby settlements will be killing each other over the money raining from the sky. Lastly, looming over the rest of the train, protecting the residents of Mayor Lancelot, are two huge castle towers called Rooklyn. The Master Chief lives here. The Cortanas are made here. The towers have no windows, only holes just wide enough for guns. Rooklyn houses Infotrain's defense system and weather machine. Wherever Infotrain goes, it moves surrounded by a garland of lightning storms. Past Rooklyn, above the very, very front of Infotrain, Hundreds of train control crew live and work in Mayor Lancelot's tower, where Mayor Lancelot keeps watch and plays games of murder chess with real humans on a scale board. The large tower extends outwards like the lady on the front of a ship. Designed to resemble Marissa Tomei and my cousin Vinny, the tower is called Maristanbul. Mayor Lancelot lives in the right boob. Did that make sense to you guys? God, we really hope it did. Despite Denis' many drawings of the train, everyone involved was having a very hard time picturing how the train would appear or how much it would cost. 
from Frank Castle's autobiography. Denis wanted the whole thing built like a three-mile train. We crunched some numbers for five minutes and realized that to build the whole thing would take the GDP of all of Earth. So we had to re-strategize. I convinced Denis. I said, Chachi, let us build it in chunks. A building here, part of the train there, maybe 20% of the train. We got Denis to agree on the condition that after shooting, we would give him Hollywood's highest honor, making his birthday a Jewish holiday. But even with that, the budget still couldn't make this work. So we crunched the numbers again, and even at a smaller scale, the train would still cost the GDP of a small country. Denis walked into the middle of the set and raged. Who the hell has a small country? Well, baby. Money McDonald's happened to be on set that day. Of course, you know, I'm a bit of a gambler. And one time in 86, I found myself in Guangzhou playing a high-stakes game of pie-gow with Chinese celebrities. As these things go, the stakes got higher and higher, and money got funkier and drunkier, and the next morning, I awoke to find that I had won Honduras. What do you mean, the entire... All of Honduras? All kinds of countries get wagered in Guangzhou, honey. So how did this deal go down? Well, I was over at the craft services table explaining the concept of rhythm to a very not lucid Kevin Costner. And all of a sudden, Billy Clientel came out of the sky and said to me, Fancy seeing you here. Would you like to make a deal? And I said, baby, money is always on the line. So a deal was quickly struck between Money and the production team. The production team would receive all of the assets of Honduras to sell off, and in exchange, Money would get an executive producer credit and legal dibs on Zach Bogart. I was enthralled with that boy. I saw him beatboxing one day, and I turned to no one in particular and said, what a tasty little dumpling that boy is. A delicious Long bao. Look, I told him I would only do select services, pause, and he said no sexual thoughts had ever taken up residence in his mind palace, and he just wanted me to fan him with a palm frond. It was easier than all the other shit I had to do on the train. So, with the Honduras amount of money behind them, the crew set about constructing InfoTrain. So, usually I wake up, check my voicemail, ignore nine bitches, Supreme Court! Then I'd head to set like before dawn, and Eusebio, he's asking me to help him make this sex girl head the size of a big house with red eyes. The idea for a normal's building Marissa Tomeo came for me in dream uh, before ever I work on the film. There is something in the male psychology in all men. When we watch uh, my cousin Vigne, the next day you will have a dream about a 100-foot-tall Marisa Tomeo, who has a, uh, in Madrid or in Spain, they call it uh, ojos rojos, the red eyes. Yep, that's real. That happened to me, too. Yeah, me, too. She also had red eyes. Yep, red eyes for me, too. So hot. So I just, hot. I mean, we can't even get No, in. we don't have time. She's every type of hot No, Mike, go to Zach Bogart's line. Yeah, so Eusebio would give me the schematics for the Horsehead Playboy Mansion, and I said, I'ma throw a block on you, cousin. Demarcus, this ain't gonna work, you see. The weight is distributed unevenly, and the building will collapse like a house of cards. Spacey, pause. Boogie, this ain't gonna work. What you need to do instead of distributing the weight horizontally is do it perpendicularly on the bottom of the horse mouth here. That way it can bear the load. Pause. And you can support the top of the head. Did you go to school for that? Nah, cuz. I went to the streets. Well, what would you do after construction? Once we got the building built, we had to do establishing shots. Brah, brah, brah. 
rah, I'ma shoot up your establishment. So me and Jacket's old ass got up in the Spitfire, and I spit fire, and we flew around getting what we needed. After the Spitfire landed, Jacket Coldweather stumbled out and ran to the documentary crew. It was quite an ordeal up there. The wind was like a squadron of stukas. Every breeze was like a dogfight. Hey, Jacket, we're over here. Oh, oh, yes, of course. Yeah, it becomes increasingly obvious that Jacket Coldweather is nearly completely blind. So we was flying up above the train, and the old man said he was going to engage the thrusters. Pause. And he pushed a button that was red and said eject on it. But I was able to move before my seat shot out. So then I grabbed the wheel, and we rolled the camera, and I got the shot. So, Zach, the shot is an incredibly complicated move. The camera sort of corkscrews around as it does a circle around the Marissa Tomei head. Where'd you learn to fly? Man, I drive drunk. That's how I learned. Wow. All right. Uh, And did you have any duties after that? I went to Money's trailer and did the palm frond thing. The next day, Denis planned to shoot an ambitious battle scene set on the train when Marlon Brando and the Cortanas surround Kevin Costner's crew as they try to get through Rooklyn into Maristanbul. But production ground to a halt as Denis and costumer Dick Van Dyzyk clashed over the sexiness of the costumes. Dick, this isn't even clothing. What is this supposed to be sexy? Mr. Does not know sex. He still has his hymen and thinks he knows fashion. I want new uniforms for the Cortanas. We made 200 of these. Gentlemen, if I may, flowers. Zach displays tremendous leadership and conflict resolution skills. Yeah, this guy could have been a CEO. He could have been anything. Mr. Van Dyzyk. Nobody can deny the sexiness of your garmentations. Personally, I know that you appeal to the sleek chicness of World War II Soviet military caps by having the Cortanas wear a book on their head. That is exactly what I was going for. But Denise simply feels that the form does not follow the function, like how the Cortanas wear a dress made of slips that blows up in the wind like the iconic Marilyn Monroe dress designed by William Travila. I agree. What if under the retro dress we appeal to their futuristic nature by having them reveal a leather suit lined with bullets? That sounds quite perfect. Yes, it does. Let's all go swimming to celebrate. How does he know all this? Zach, how do you know all this? Man, I'm from the school of hard knocks. Never went to class. I just remember everything I've ever heard or read or seen with perfect clarity. If I saw a bridge when I was five, I could draw a perfect now with a pencil. Got that lead? Zach, why are you a grip? You could be anything you want. You have so many connections. Man, I got no connections. I don't tell no one who my family is. No snitching. I return my family's bag. Reusable. I didn't want no family ties. Michael J. But can you support yourself from music? Nah, I mostly live off the Jeopardy money. The what? Yeah, I won Jeopardy 63 times. I would have broke the record, but I bailed on a taping to open for Soldier Boy in Portland. 207. Aight, I gotta hang up. I'm almost done reading Gravity's Rainbow. Peace. On the days that Zack worked on Infotrain, he was a leader and a hero. Production moved ahead of schedule until Money McDonald's left the set, taking Zack Bogart with him. According to Money, I needed my fraud man with me when I went to Salt Lake City to check out Mormonism. I thought I wanted to be the kitty cat with nine wives. With Money and Zack gone, production quickly fell back into disarray. The schedule went out the window, and bickering on set was constant. As a result, Denis thought it would be a good idea to hold an extravagant dinner for the cast and crew, which at this point was numbering in the thousands. He hired Meg Benedict and the Nutrient Post to cater the dinner, 
which meant every person in attendance ate the finest cannabis and protein log. In a further attempt to boost morale, Denis arranged for a kind of show. So I understand this has been somewhat of an arduous process. But we all know that no bolognese was ever made in a microwave. Tonight I thought we might have some light-hearted jokes at my expense. So to kick things off with a few ribald japes is our very own spiffy St. Grenade, Jason Callback. Hey, it's great to be here with my 600 closest friends. Is that a thing? You know, somebody once asked Denis where he sees himself in five years. Yeah, Denis said, filming scene two. People keep saying that Denis is a genius. <laughs> yeah, all right, like Stephen Hawking. But Stephen Hawking has an excuse for sitting in his chair all day. <clears throat> Plus, Stephen Hawking never killed any horses last time I checked. They've been calling Denis the Hitler of Hollywood. You know, you heard this? Yeah, but at least Hitler got the train to run on time. <clears throat> also, Denis, sorry, Denis, why are you talking like that? We all know you're from the South, but now you sound like Frasier. We've all seen Frasier. If you want to talk like a character, I don't know, maybe pick one from something nobody remembers, like, oh, maybe Blood and Sand? Damn. Got his ass. At that moment, Denis jumped from his seat, grabbed Jason by his ears, and dragged him out of the dinner tent. Outside, he somehow found a donkey, tied Jason to the donkey, slapped it on its ass, and watched it ride off into the desert. And that donkey was never found. Nobody ever found Jason Callback's body. The Callback family is still looking for him. It's really sad. Besides the moral wrongs of what Denis did, there was also some production problems caused by this. Jason Callback had already shot most of his scenes, but Denis did not care. By the next day, a new spiffy sand grenade had been cast and flown to set. The infamous child star, Bibby Monculus. We have a doozy of an ad for you guys today, don't we, Nate? Yep. Go ahead, Nate. Tell them what the ad is for. Do you guys think that art has the power to heal the world? Well, my girlfriend does, and she's doing it one painting at a time. And this is your opportunity to own one of those paintings, thanks to our sponsor, Nate's Girlfriend's Art. Well, technically, they're not paintings. Oh, duh, silly me. Tell them what they are, Nate. They are irreverent explorations into what society thinks a paint canvas could be. For example, I have a boot nailed to my ceiling. Bye-bye security deposit. My girlfriend, Anna. What's that short for? Annapolis. Annapolis is selling work starting at $450. All art appreciates in value over time. Vincent Van Gogh sold his art for pennies. Did Van Gogh learn art at a store where you paint and drink wine? Again, she doesn't just paint. She also does brick art, where she glues bricks to your walls in shapes. 
We're not liable if they fall off and or hurt a pet. And for $1,100, she'll draw an original Calvin and Hobbes comic strip on your wall where they are older and dating each other. Tell them about the basketball. Jesus, you're here? How long have you been here? Since this morning. Yeah, she's pretty good at blending in. I thought that was just a pile of pillows. She does the pillow pile a lot. Can I read a poem on your show? Nope, out of time. Back to the show. Uh, yeah, next episode. We can't talk about Bibby Munculus until we answer a few fundamental questions. Was Bibby Munculus made in a lab? Yes. Next. Did Bibby Munculus have a biological mother or father? No. When the scientists took a chunk out of Walt Disney's cryogenically frozen glute and put it in a nuclear reactor, how long did it take Bibby Munculus to form? 22 years. Hollywood had a problem in the 70s and 80s. Child actors kept dying on set. It's very hard to find a child actor that is A, good at acting, B, has parents that are willing to let them work in Hollywood, and C, not doomed from birth to die young. You usually get one, two if you're lucky, but you never get all three. Bibby Munculus was Hollywood's first experiment into circumventing the human creation process. An angelic-looking child with a blonde bowl cut, Bibby was a rousing success. Preschool pilot, Calvin and Hobbes the movie, and the war epic Children of the Eastern Front, which we have a clip from. If we are doing battle today, do we have to do homework for Monday? No, Pavel. They blew up the school. I never thought that I would miss school. War takes so much from us. Instead of reshooting Jason callback scenes, Denis added a scene where it is revealed that Spiffy St. Grenade is himself a Cortana, who is nearing the end of his life cycle. When nearing the end, a Cortana depubertizes which is a term that Denis made up himself. You're probably asking, aren't all of the Cortana's women? Isn't that a big plot point? Yes. Yes, it is. But this was the first explanation that Denis thought of for why randomly a central character was now a child, and he refused to budge as soon as he thought of it. People did not like it, especially considering they still had to film scenes from earlier in the movie. For these scenes, they would simply alternate between Jason in one shot and Bibby in another back and forth seemingly at random. So in one scene, Costner and his team are captured and he tells Spiffy St. Grenade, played by Bibby Munculus, that he has valuable information sewn into the lining of his jacket. And then in the next scene, Spiffy, played by Jason Callback, has been forced to be the Master Chief Marlon Brando's soap boy and accompanies him to the bathhouse. We have some audio. Do my battle scars scare you? No, Master Chief. It's okay if they do. It was scary when I got them. Would you like the soft loofah or the coarse loofah? Soft. Listen, boy. There's some information that I'd like to coax out of you. I understand that the father of your little band has many treasures that I'd like to get my hands on. Do you know where daddy keeps his treasures, little boy? I don't know, Master Chief. If you were my daddy, where would you keep your treasures? I have a few ideas. Also, you can't see this, but Jason Callback is like three-fourths erect in this scene. 
I mean, there's a loincloth, but it doesn't hide much. The scene ends with Spiffy giving Master Chief such a deep massage that he falls fast asleep, which allows Spiffy to pull a metal ring with like 10-inch long treasure chest keys on it out of Brando's pants. And two seconds later in the next shot, the fully clothed child Bibby Monculus is breaking Kevin Costner out of his jail cell. So it just keeps going back and forth at random with different people playing the same character, and you're just supposed to get it. Sort of like a, an Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus thing. Oh yeah, did you see that? No, of course not. Yeah, me neither. This was not well received by anyone on set, and Bibby soon found himself, is it, is it itself? Ostracized from the rest of the cast, except for one person. Well, I took quite a liking to the little fella. We would play chess together, and he was the best player I've ever seen. He was even better than the computers. And every time he beat me, I gave him a piece of printer paper for him to eat. Across set, Eusebio had his own problem stemming from the arrival of Bibi Munculus. I am supposed to make beautiful calves with Indian drawings on the wall. But when Denis purchased the plastic child and did the reshoots, no budget left for the cavern. So I make do with what I have. The documentary crew caught Denis' first reaction to the cave. What the fuck is this, Eusebio? Where's my fucking scary cave? This looks like Pee-wee's Playhouse. You gave me $100, gosh. Where are the... <clears throat> Where are the Anasazi petroglyphs? Yeah, up there, look. Those are stickers. That's a Grateful Dead skull. Ooh. Hey, that stalactite just moved. The stalactites are all men standing under blankets. Ooh, I'm a stalactite. Put your arms down. Stalactites don't talk. That's how it's scary. With a sound studio cave out of the question, Denis was forced to scour the area for a real cave. And luckily, someone just happened to appear. I know of a very special cave you can use very close to Kanab. Billy Clientel! Finally, someone on this godforsaken set who cares about my well-being. Billy Clientel took Denis and his closest crew members and the documentary team to that cave where Klaus Kinski was last seen entering. And this is where season two of A Closer Look takes a horrifying turn. The group stands at the entrance of the cave. This is a truly picturesque cavern, Billy Clientel. How on earth did you find it? Ah. Uh. I mountain bike. There is block charcoal writing above the cave entrance that says, Do not enter. The entrance itself is like a funnel, only wide enough for one person at its narrowest. Okay. Pearl, Michael, you first. Hell no. Absolutely not. I don't fuck with caves. I am afraid of the dark. Where I'm from, we do not go into caves. That's how you get eaten by that deer creature. Um, the, uh... The Wendy's girl. That's right, the Wendy's girl. They call it that because it ate the original Wendy's girl. They're talking about the Wendigo. Like that movie, Antlers. Did you ever see that? No, of course not. Yeah, me neither. Denis leads the crew into the cavern with their flashlights. They wind through tunnels until eventually they pass through an opening into a large grotto. 
There are Anasazi petroglyphs on the wall dating back thousands of years. This is the real thing. Look at the petroglyphs, whoa! Hmm... I don't think these are petroglyphy enough. Start painting over these. Okay, I'll start painting. Oh, shit! Oh, I got grabbed by the Wendy's girl! Ah, never mind. I just tripped. Wait, what the fuck is this? Michael Chicklets holds up to the camera a DVD of the Sylvester Stallone movie Cliffhanger. Stallone's best work. Really? That one? Everyone in the group scans the grotto with their flashlights. There are stacks of DVDs everywhere, all out of their cases, stacked to the ceiling. Thousands of them. What a curious case of DVDs. Well, let's get them out so we can shoot. Excellent idea, Michael. Knock the stacks down and break them. Easier to transport. What? Oh, yeah, sure. Throw all the DVDs into trash bags. The large group begins clearing out all of the DVDs. The camera is set down as a documentary crew joins in. But it keeps recording, and it catches something. All the crew missed it, but we caught it. The crew leaves the cave and loads up some trucks with the trash. They drive back to the set compound. As they approach set, Eusebio Crisco looks back and wonders why, all of a sudden, hundreds of people from Kanab are sprinting directly behind them. Pearl says they must be doing some kind of half marathon. The Canabians are catching up to the convoy of trucks, which slowly pulls into the gates of the set compound. The two members of the Rob Zombies slowly close the gates. When the gate is closed, the wave of sprinting Canabians stops. We look back at the footage of the cave wall over and over and over to make sure we were seeing what we thought we were seeing. We called in an expert in ancient linguistics from the University of Massachusetts Amherst to confirm our theory. Professor Sam Urinal. The writings on the wall indicate... <laughs> Sorry, what, what's, what's your name again? Sam Urinal. Got it. Got it. The petroglyphs become increasingly clear as we read from right to left. The first and oldest drawings are long charcoal figures with arms over their heads, but no legs. To the left of that is sort of a disc with a ball in the middle and speed lines just to the right of it. Beneath that, a green almond-shaped head with huge black eyes. What does that mean? I believe that is an alien. That same head appears further down the wall wearing a cowboy hat, and it appears a third time, only this time a human face has been drawn on top of it. What about the square? Next to the human face is a charcoal square that contains some Anasazi hieroglyphic lettering. This lettering translates roughly to Schindler's List. At the end of the cave wall, there are several more squares on top of each other, and an arrow leading to a purple globe. Next to the globe, we make out an equal sign, followed by what I believe is a drawing of a burglar sack with a dollar sign on it. Once decoded by academics, the petroglyph's meaning is clear. The people of Kanab are aliens. They masquerade as human, collecting DVDs, which on their home planet are worth their weight in gold. Klaus Kinski found this secret cave, and by the morning, he was dead. Now the Kanab aliens have to prevent their secret from leaving the set of cyber cowboys. Next time on A Closer Look.